Hello and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. I called this podcast after a quote from author and poet Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this, too. This week, I'm really excited to be introducing not one, but two very special guests. So you lucky listeners are getting two for the price of one. And what a pair. Chris Roberts began to develop Alzheimer's disease almost a decade ago when he was just 50 years old. Jane, his wife of 26 years, says he'd turned into a bit of a Victor Meldrew, impatient and bad-tempered, when she'd used to call him Kofi Annan after the former UN Secretary-General because he was so conciliatory. It was 13 months before Chris was finally diagnosed with a mixture of vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. We walked in, as husband and wife, Jane says, and came out as patient and carer. But this, she now realises, was the wrong way to look at it. In taking over Chris's tasks, she was disabling him more than the dementia was. She now knows to look out for Chris, not to look after him. Jane has learned a lot in the years since diagnosis. Initially, she experienced a range of emotions, including shame. She knew this was illogical. She knew dementia was a disease and nothing to be ashamed of. But she had visions of her husband, a property manager and motorbike enthusiast, being diminished and utterly reliant on her, all dignity thrown out of the window. In many ways, Chris accepted the diagnosis better than her. As I so often hear, he says it was a relief to know what it was. He does seem to have the most incredible attitude to life. Live life, he says. Take it by the danglies and run with it. It's become one of my favourite mantras. And it's what subsequently he and Jane have done. They make a phenomenal team. Full of down-to-earth humour, hope and self-deprecating advice, they tour not just their native Wales or even the UK, but the globe as dementia ambassadors. The list of their awards and their leading roles with organisations and charities, from the Alzheimer's Society to clinical advisory groups and think tanks, seems never-ending. While in 2016 they appeared in a groundbreaking BBC Panorama documentary in which the family were filmed over nearly two years to show Chris's dementia, his story, in all its raw reality. Watching it, I was blown away by their courage. We are two sides of the same coin, We come as a pair, says Jane. Chris has always been the man I loved, but it has only been since his dementia diagnosis that I've seen what he is capable of. So, Jane and Chris Roberts, down the line from your home in North Wales during this time of Covid lockdown, welcome to Well, 
I know now. And after that wonderful quote, Jane, I feel the first thing I must ask you both is to tell us all how you met and fell in love. Well, we've known each other since I was 16 when Chris was dating one of my best friends. And then I started dating the other best friend. And then he had a baby with the other best friend. (laughs) And then, um, you know, everybody went their separate ways. I went off and, and married elsewhere. But then when everybody had done the usual British divorce thing, we all got back together in a child's birthday party. Mm. And there was just an, a spark there that we'd never had before, mm. which was, it was quite disconcerting because <laughs> we were friends. Yes. And you don't fancy your friends. So um, we, we found it quite um, wrong. Oh. So we pussyfooted around for some few months eventually. Yes. The best friend that that had the child, she thought he was hanging around to to get back together with her, and she was quite surprised <laughs> when actually he was hanging around. To see me. That's slightly awkward. And, uh, we we went on our first date, decided to get married, and married seven months later. We were actually crossing the road to go to a local pub and then a nightclub, and Jane stepped out in front of a car, so I grabbed hold of her. Oh, what a night! Back to the side of the pavement, and as she spun around. The world stopped and we just looked at each other. Is that true, yeah, Chris? Yeah, it, it, I spun into his arms, it's like something off a, a Mills and Boone. Fred Astaire movie. Yeah, yeah. And we ended up underneath a lamppost looking into each other's <laughs> eyes, sprang apart as though a, an electric shock had, had gone through us and didn't speak for the rest of the evening. Oh, I see, because it was at that moment that you turned from friends into something else. It was at that point that we actually acknowledged... We, we can't ignore this, you know, we, we both yes. felt the same. And after our first date, within six months, I was divorced from my ex-wife, yes. um, who I'd split with um, a couple of years yes. anyway, and we got married. How extraordinary. Well, it wasn't a whirlwind because you'd been friends, but it was very romantic by the sound of it. It was a whirlwind because you don't go out with friends. You don't turn friends into a romantic partner. We were very aware that we could destroy our friendship as well as the reaction of those around us. When I say we had to be very sure, we just knew in our very souls, our gut, that we were right for each other. Absolutely. And 26 years later, here you are. Still here. Still here. Still Still here. Still going. And so now to fast forward a little bit, I saw some of the stuff that you'd done when you, you know, the various roles that you've had in life. And in fact, Jane, I, did I read correctly that you at one point were a feng shui practitioner? Yeah, I started, th- thanks to Chris supporting me wholeheartedly, which he has, even when I was 16, you know, he's, he's always been a hugely supportive person. Mm. He supported me to travel all over the world studying feng shui from a Chinese Malaysian feng shui master. And I did consultancy, well, across Europe. I even did consultancy for a lady in Shanghai, a Chinese lady who met me in London and took me to Shanghai to do the feng shui of her apartment there, which was, yeah, that felt good. Yes. Yes. Why did did you stop doing that? When Chris's dementia came about. Oh, it was because of that, was it? It it evolved into um, more. You started studying Chinese metaphysics, which is what feng shui is a small part of. Okay. It expanded from the, the feng shui itself, which is totally misunderstood here in the West. Uh, we think it's about handbags and feeling yes. good, about furniture placement. It is about furniture placement, but it's more about what is going on external to your home. So bringing the external to the internal. Oh, okay. uh, but that expanded into more esoteric stuff, which if I explained it here, you'd all think I was a bit cookie. But um, 
it actually works. Things like date selection, choosing the right time and location to actually implement the feng shui. Something called Chiman Dunja, which is tapping into universal forces. Yes, you were right, Jane. Um, um, my diagnosis stopped our world in its tracks. Yes. Because, as you said before, I, I became his carer, therefore I couldn't just trot off on, on, on a whim because yes. who would look after Chris? Who would yes. look after the house and the family? Yes. Because I didn't understand dementia at that point. Yes, yes. Do you think what you learned through your feng shui has informed your life and the way that you and Chris have lived your life since Chris's diagnosis? It was certainly a great leveller because doing all this feng shui, advising people how to maximise the potential of their lives, then our life took a turn that was completely left field. It, it floored me. I think it floored me. I don't know if it's conceit to say more than Chris mm. because I was supposed to prevent this. I was supposed to look after him. Yes. Uh, the same way that as matriarch, I went into the carer role. Yes. But the philosophy behind it, the yeah, the philosophy, which is very Buddhist in mind, has very much supported me to come to terms with it, to come to the acceptance that actually it isn't the devastating disease I thought it was going to be. Mm. It may well turn to that later on, mm. but certainly for this past eight years, mm. it was only my initial response that was devastating, yes. not the disease. Yes, It was can... me mm. that was struggling. It wasn't mm. the disease making the struggles. My biggest initial problem after diagnosis was the huge immense feeling of guilt I had yes that was very interesting Chris that comes across in other interviews I've read that you've given can you explain that a little bit more because why would you feel guilty about something that's completely beyond your control well first as you said it, it was relief that, that there was an explanation for my mm. behavior and the mm. way I was acting and feeling mm. but then this wave of guilt come over mm. me and I really struggled with it yes. because I think, firstly, I had no control over it. Mm. I, I am quite a control mm. person. I do like to take charge of stuff. But the, the biggest thing, what caused the guilt, is mm. that I suddenly... I was supposed to look after my children. I was mm. in no position to do that anymore. Mm. I had um, ruined all our future plans, mm. all the memories we were going to make, all mm. the travelling we were going to do. Mm. And there was no place for me in my family's future or so I thought. Dr Google didn't help did he? No I think Dr Google Chris, often doesn't help. And what Chris, a, carry on, Chris googled what dementia meant because we didn't have any clue and some of the horror stories that came up mm. gave Chris that feeling of guilt. He's very often said how he's read how the carer is going to have so much difficulties and going to break down. Yes. Yeah yeah so, so the, yeah I'd forgotten about, about, about that. The, the guilt of what I was going to put Jane and my family through. Yes, the burden you might be putting on yeah, them. Is that how you saw because it? Because I, I mm. realised that I was the lucky one in, in our diagnosis. Yeah. Because you know, the diagnosis is shared. Because eventually, yeah. if I live long enough, I'll forget. Yes. I won't be in touch with the world, as it were. Yes. But they don't have that luxury. But what a way to see it, Chris. And Jane, if I could turn to you, was it a response from Chris that you expected in Chris? Is Chris always such a... I mean, that's quite an altruistic sort of response, isn't it? I mean, some people might just have thought, oh, Jesus, you know, how unfair this should happen to me. And in fact, Chris's reaction seems to be far more, oh, my goodness, how guilty am I for inflicting this on my family? Well, as you alluded to before, I didn't realise who Chris was. I knew, because, <laughs> how, why would I? Chris is a problem solver. If there's a mm. problem, 
he finds the solution. Can I fix the problem? Mm. Yes, I can fix it. Mm. Can I fix it? No, I can't. Mm. Okay, what can I do about it? Mm. If I can't do anything about it, let's move on. Mm. So I have been protected all my married life by that type of character because I haven't noticed the problem because Chris has either fixed it or we've moved on from it. Mm. And all of a sudden, I was feeling devastated. It was all about me. I, you know, was supposed to fix him. Mm. Um, I had a knot Mm. in my stomach for two years Mm. because... I didn't know how to fix it. And we didn't speak to each other, really. We just accepted the diagnosis and mm. went home. You know, mm. la, la, la. I didn't discuss all the guilt I was feeling initially for the first, you know, year, two years. You didn't. Because, you did because not. of all the problems that Jane was yes. having emotionally and, and right. mentally anyway. So I just kept it to myself. So both of you really, in your own way, were assimilating this news, this shocking news, I suppose, because you were so young, Chris, that you'd got. And then once you'd done that you were able to talk about it. What brought about you being able to talk to each other about it? I think the initial thing was I wanted to get the elephant out of the room, as it were. Mm. And so I announced that I had a diagnosis of dementia on social media, on Facebook. And I thought, how many other people might be in my position and are not discussing it? How Mm. many other people might know someone Mm. and they're not discussing it? And Mm. I thought, let's get the elephant out of the room. Plus, it saves a lot of money on phone calls. And I was in shock. I went, Mm. I I was stunned and it was like, well, okay, if you think that's the right thing, because obviously it was Chris's decision, Mm. it wasn't up to me to make the decisions, Mm. but I was stunned. I was like a rabbit in the headlight. But what we did, again, it was Chris was very, very uh, intelligent about this. He Mm. said, well, put it on Facebook, but I don't want any comments. Now, I don't know if you could stop comments then. I can't remember, but we sat there, Chris put it on Facebook, and every time a comment came in like, oh, don't be daft, yeah, you bugger, you know, yeah, yeah, Yeah. so have I. We whipped the comments down, and then I private messaged the people to say, no, this is true, but we're not looking for sympathy, you know, we just want to put it out there. Yes. So... Chris doing that meant I had to confront it as well. You know, it was out there. So the the shame that I felt, it either had to go away, I had to speak about it openly, or else I wasn't being true to the shame I felt. I found that the more I spoke about it, the more empowered I felt Mm. and the better I felt. So Mm. I thought, we shouldn't have this dirty little secret. Absolutely. You know, we, we shouldn't be embarrassed, you know, and, and I read that we shouldn't be embarrassed. Yes. It's a disease of the brain. Yes. It's just stigma. Yes. So I, I then decided, right, well, that's my new role. Yes, yes. So actually, by doing this very clever thing, and I know, Jane, that that's one of the things that you say that you know now that you didn't before, which is that dementia doesn't, in any sense, take away your intelligence you know, immediately. You don't sort of suddenly overnight suddenly become not an intelligent person. Absolutely, because when Chris was diagnosed, we went into the patient carer role and Chris, God bless him, took on the role as patient because I had automatically taken on the role of carer. Yes, you'd slotted... somebody is given a diagnosis of any condition, then... We do go into that, Okay, let's wrap them in cotton wool, put them to bed for two weeks... It's a natural instinct, yes. So what I started to do as carer for a person with dementia is I started to take over the tasks that Chris could or couldn't do I started to you know just just do more than than I would have before making coffee 
and also the, the, the tasks and things that you assumed I couldn't do. And out of ignorance, I let Jane do it because I all of a sudden I had dementia and I couldn't do that. Yes. You gave a very good example, actually, Jane, of the boiling the water for the tea. Yeah, that was where I had one of those epiphanies, a real light bulb moment. Chris had stopped making coffee because he just couldn't do it. The last time he'd made coffee, it was black coffee. So I started doing all the tea and the coffee. And you take all these roles on yourself. Yes. And it's only a cup of tea, but it's one of those additional straws on your back. And I was making Sunday lunch one day, touching the, the raw meat, and I needed boiling water. And I said, boil me some water. And he went, no, I can't. I was like, why can't you? Boil the water. All right, all right. What's the problem? And he said, I can't open the kettle. Well, that was my light bulb moment. Mm. Chris was able to boil water, but the item, the kettle, was stopping him from doing it. The kettle was disabling Chris, not the dementia. Yes, and the process. Yeah, the process. But I had a complete change in mindset then because when you make a cup of tea, there's all these different steps, different processes and the only reason that Chris couldn't do it was because he couldn't open this kettle because yes. it was quite an awkward lid. So what I did, I went out and I bought a push-button kettle yes. because that is you push a button. You know, with many severe difficulties, you can push a button, the kettle opens. And Chris then became able to boil the water again and able to make coffee. As I say, I don't take milk and coffee anymore because that part he couldn't quite, yes. that bit had gone. But it was a huge light bulb moment mm. that the disabling of the person with dementia may not always be the dementia, it's the items. I think it was a big learning curve for the, for the whole family because then if I couldn't do something, we then looked, why can't I do it? Yes. And we looked through the, the, the processes. Yes. I stopped using the computer. And so my daughter sat down with me and she said, right, let's have a look, you know, why can't you? And we worked out in the end, it was because it, it was a screen, a keyboard, a mouse, and it was multitasking. I just couldn't work yes. all those three things yes. and think as well. Yes. So she, she gave me her tablet to try and everything's touch screens. Right. And it was just, yes, I yes. can carry on. Yes. So it's a matter of facilitating the person to be able to do it, and then they can. It's finding out what. Yes. And then coming up with a solution and then supporting and assisting. Yes. And also that if Chris can't use a computer, what does the same thing differently? So in our case, Chris couldn't open that particular kettle. Let's get a different kettle. Yes. And it's looking to see what is the actual problem. Don't just think, dementia, that's it, it's gone. Yes, and it's gone. What yes. is the problem? Mm, mm, and mm. then finding a solution. A solution a way around it. that's who Chris has always been. And that's where you, you've got to be so careful. It's a fine line between caring and disabling and enabling. Yes, I can see that. Mm. And the more you do for someone with dementia, the more that they will forget. Yes, somebody else has said exactly the same thing to me on a podcast, actually. In fact, it was Zoe Harris, who you know. I think what happens is it really is use it or lose it. And yes. we found that with, with being in the lockdown situation. Chris is losing some of the skills that he'd retained far longer than I expected him to. Yes. But I didn't know whether that was because of his advocacy work or because that was just Chris. Yes. Well, because now we're in lockdown, yes. actually I can hear his vocabulary. He's, he's struggling to find more words. His fluency is becoming less fluent, which maybe you might not notice, but I do. Yes. So it is use it or lose it. And yes, at some point 
he will lose it, anybody will, but mm. not necessarily as early as we think. Mm. It's not a magic wand, mm. but it helps. Yes. You know, and, and anything we can do to slow the progression, yes. we need to do it, you know. Yes. My memory over this lockdown period has completely just been obliterated because I, I think I, I've got nothing to, to think about. I've got nothing to do. Yes. And so I'm not practising. Yes. And the stimulation isn't there as much, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But initially, going back to after the diagnosis, I thought, well, right, let, let's read up about this dementia. Let's find out as much as we can because mm. knowledge is power, you know, yes. power in knowledge. And I thought once I understood the illness, then I could live with it better. And that worked to a certain extent. But then I, I've also found this element of almost learned hopelessness and learned behaviour because you also read about dementia symptoms and, you know, coloured mats and black holes and yes. this and that and the other. So you immediately start to have problems with them. And you might not have those problems. Yes, it's the power of suggestion, isn't it? You haven't reached that yes. stage. Yes, yes. So I can see that that's a double-edged sword. Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. Mm. And I keep saying to people, you know, they say, oh, you don't look like you've got dementia. Well, mm. well what does dementia look like anyway? Absolutely. And I say, but, but I was diagnosed very early yes. because I really think that in young onset, it's much more noticeable because your memory isn't going, because you're not being debilitated by age mm. and because it's more noticeable in your work yes. you know, and with your family around you. Yes. And when you're really older, it's not so noticeable because your mm. family don't visit as much or they might not visit. Yes. You, know, you, you blame things on age. Yes. And trying to explain to people that, yes, I have dementia, but, but no, I'm not like the people that you think I should be yet because yes. there's a beginning and a middle before yes. the end stages. Yes, yes. Absolutely. And you mentioned there, Chris, your daughter, Kate. I don't know if it was Kate, but you mentioned your daughter actually helping yeah, you with the computer. My youngest, Kate. Kate, yeah. helping you with the computer and sort of working out that you couldn't multitask all these things. Now, tell me about Kate, because I believe that she was 14, I think, when you were first diagnosed. And I remember Jane saying you'd all had to sort of take on these different roles. And as a 14-year-old, she'd had to learn not to answer back, which is tricky when, as a 14-year-old, that is part of your job description. But then didn't she, if I'm right, decide not to go to university so as to help to support you and Jane at home, which, again, you know, it sounds like she did something incredibly altruistic. Well, she was the youngest at home. And in fact, she, she was the only one living at home at the time because the others uh, were working away. Mm. And, you know, even though they might be living here, we, we didn't see them so much. So she took it on herself to be Jane's assistant, almost, mm. apprentice. You mm. know, and, and, and she became a carer herself, even though it was a young carer. Mm. And I think because she's grown up with it, you know, from the age of 13, 14, 14, 14. And because she's grown up with it and, mm. and she's learned with us, then mm. she hasn't made assumptions. And that's really helped her. Wow. understand dementia and she has been amazing through the whole process has she mm. yeah and when when we say she didn't go to university we can't be sure of that she says no her dad's condition wasn't the the material factor but we can never be sure before her dementia but before 14 yes mm. she wanted to go to university she wanted mm. to be a barrister mm. or a hairdresser <laughs> okay. uh, so we can't be sure what made that decision however she then decided 
you know, after some years of, of us all living together and she'd finished school, she has gone back to college. She's training to be a nursery nurse with a view at some point in the future, maybe to open up her own day nursery. You know, right. but we don't know. She's only 22 now anyway, yes. so she's still got the world in front of her. But whether her father's condition influenced that decision or not, we don't know. But that gave me a feeling of upset that that might be influencing her decision. When she went into school and she said to her parochial teacher, mm. she said, oh, you know, because we said, you know, you need to go in. We phoned school and we told them. So the teacher came over and said, we informed the school that there was a problem, that he had dementia. Anyway, she said to Kate, I hear your father's got dementia. She mm. said, yes. She said, well, can he still recognise you in case... Oh, said, crikey. Yes. Oh, well, when he can't, then come and speak to me. Oh, my And goodness. that was the whole support she got from the school they didn't understand it and then in one of the lessons she had to write a life situation she wrote about young onset dementia mm. and the teacher said the teacher of that particular subject said no they can't get it this young dementia is an old person's disease you know it's mm. for your grannies and things and mm. um, so there was a complete lack of understanding mm. in the school mm. no disrespect to the school they were completely ignorant because it yes. was way back in 2012 13 yes. Yes. Really, the best thing was actually coming out. Taking the elephant out of the room. Yes. Coming out. For everybody. For everybody. Mm. Yeah, and for all those around us, because they were allowed then. Mm. It gave them permission mm. to not listen to any whispers or Chris has been Absolutely. going for tests. Does anybody Absolutely. I've heard it was dementia. You know, which wasn't going about. But before that went about, we came out and said, he has dementia, speak about it. And some people were very open about it. That like, well, what were the symptoms? Yes. How do you know? Are you sure? When we started to find that we were educating people then, we'd go yes. to a campsite, and, and I'm quite open about, and I would explain about dementia and bring the subject up, and then they would want to learn. And then I'd end up with 30 people watching out for me, which would take the pressure off Jane. Absolutely. And this is what you were saying, Chris, that in fact, once you started to talk about it, and then you started to go to conferences just to listen to people and then you began to ask questions and then you began to talk yourself at conferences and now I mean you are really the most amazing public speakers both of you and all that gave you a purpose and a role and is very important for you now. It was still that neither of us knew that, that we had I mean Jane was doing some public speaking in her teaching role in a consultancy business yes but I'm just an old banker you know, and and I'm good hands-on, but I never, never envisioned me doing this at all. Yes. Chris's background is very humble. He was brought up the son of a miner in a council house at whatever age he went into the mines to the pit face till he was, you know, for about five years. He's sprayed motor cars, motorbikes. He's been a very manual, manual work. You know, at some point he did open his own motorbike shop, but it, it only lasted two or three years, which is the way of these things. Yes. And then he's now speaking on yes. a stage to, I think the maximum was how many people? We spoke to 5,000 delegates in, in Japan, but Jane keeps saying... Stop exaggerating, it was 4,900. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is a big audience. That is a very big yeah. audience. Where was that? What that was the was, event? Uh, I can't remember. No. Osaka, at the Alzheimer's Kyoto. disease. Kyoto. 
Kyoto. Yes. Japan. There you yeah. go. Yeah. See, he's got a better memory than Yes, me. yes. Uh, well, Chris has always struck me as, well, both of you, but Chris has always struck me as incredibly astute. And you have a very good way with words, Chris, actually, because I remember in the, uh, which I wanted to talk about actually quickly, we have actually been talking for quite a long time already, but the, the, the <laughs> programme you did, Panorama Documentary, but I think it was in oh, that yes. where you said, the person I miss most is me. And, you know, there was yeah. something so profound about that. And you mm. often seem to cut through it and say these very simple sentences that you're left really thinking, wow. So, you know, incredibly astute. But tell me, you two, about how the programme came about and what your response was, because I, it was the most courageous, must be nerve-wracking thing to do to allow CCTV cameras we put around your house and to be filmed for nearly two years by BBC film crew. How it started was BBC Wales were doing a week-in, week-out programme, which I think in England is the equivalent of Inside Out. On Dementia, they took somebody in later stages, middle stages, and somebody in early stages who also had young onset. It was a half-hour programme, and the feedback they got, particularly about our story, was phenomenal. So that team went to Panorama, pitched the programme that they wanted to follow Chris for two years, and were accepted. And it was very nerve-wracking. We, we weren't sure, but I thought, no, no, we need to do this because people need to know, they need to be educated and they need to know that it happens to people and that you can live with it. I hate the phrase living well, but mm. you can live with it. Mm. And, and we use humour and, you know, and we use every resource of, available. And, you do. And we thought, we, we need to share this. Yes. Yes, you use humour a lot, you two, to deflect things, and it's very yeah. powerful uh, piece well, of weaponry in your armoury. We've a very good relationship with the um, producer over that time. Yes. And um, she said, what do you want to get out of the programme? What do you want out of the programme? Okay. And so I, we said, you know, education, awareness, and yes. try and get rid of some of the stigma about mental health. And to be fair, she got most of what we wanted in the programme, which yes. was fantastic but the worrying thing was when it's first releases we didn't know what people would say because dementia is not like the, that for us it's not like that for me it's not like that for my mum and I think we got away with that not got away with it but it wasn't as bad as we thought because it was Chris's story we put on the end it was mm. living with dementia mm. but my mm. story absolutely no one absolutely it's one man's story isn't it Yes, and also... I, mean, I, I think probably mm. we were very naive, certainly from my point of view, we were very naive doing the programme, thinking, yeah, OK, we'll do it. But also, for all these serious and deep things that Chris has said, you know, to show people what it is like living with dementia behind closed doors, mm. and the only way they could capture that was with CCTV. Mm. They gave us a handicap and said, if Chris does something, you know... And, but I will say they were totally authentic. They did mm. not want anything contrived mm. at all. That's when we come up with the CCTV because Jane wasn't catching the demented moments. Mm. Yeah, you know what it's like. If somebody mm. does something, mm. you grab a camera and point mm. it at them and it's already done, Gone. it's happened. Mm. Uh, you've missed the moment yes. and it cannot be recreated. Yes. So it was suggested about CCTV. Mm. And yeah, mm. and, and I thought, well... You know, if it all goes belly up with the programme or whatever, at least we'll have a fantastic high-definition home movie at the end yes, of it. Yes, yes. Uh, 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 mm. gave us insight that, that we didn't know, and it also helped explain and educate us, I think. 
Yeah, mm. and there was one point where Chris's coat had been missing for two days mm. and my son found it tucked in the tin cupboard, mm. which is right next to the cooker <laughs> that we hadn't found for two days. And the CCTV for me, that was that's brilliant. <laughs> we saw... We were in the room with Chris and did not see him putting his coat in the cupboard. Yes. So whilst we are in the room, we didn't see the dementia moment, but the yes. CCTV caught Did. it. The all-seeing eye caught it. How yeah. funny, uh, um, how funny. But I think yeah. one of the powerful points about the programme for me was that you got dementia very much in the round. There were funny bits, strange as that might sound. Yes, you know, even as the audience, you kind of got the funny bits. And you got the profound moments, as I say, when Chris says things that he says. And then you got the really difficult to watch bits, you know, yeah. when Chris in the night was railing against his disease or when you were saying things, Jane. And it was, it wasn't exactly warts and all, but it was just so truthful because it was CCTV. It was there, you know, there was no filter required sort of thing. Honest. Honest. I mean, one of the, the things it didn't show, because the computer at it, they telephoned me one day to say, Chris had a fall two nights ago and it looked really bad. You know, how is oh, he? Right. And I said, well, he has been complaining of bruises, but Chris has no memory of it. Mm. And apparently mm. it was quite a nasty fall. Mm. But when they went to review it, the computer at it. Now, that would have been really, really really powerful yes. but it was just gone and the powerful part of that would be the fact that Chris had had a fall unseen yeah. unbidden nobody knew and unremembered and Chris by himself him. didn't even know mm, mm, um, mm. I think a, a, a genuine story is so much better than just a story you know a, a life story and, and it's mm. now getting used for, for training and, yes, and purposes sure. and things but it's opened up people's eyes and they realize that people with dementia are still people yes you know and, and they're people first and foremost yes but it also allowed people to talk about it yes and the other great thing you did chris was you decided didn't you very early on to choose a care home that you were going to when the time came again you did that to spare your family from having to do it so they would know that that's where you wanted to go you do seem to have this tremendous sort of foresight and wisdom about you it's not wisdom, it's not foresight, it's just trying to be practical and trying to stay in control, I think. Mm. But it was a very, very practical thing because if something happened to me mm. and then Chris had to go somewhere, mm. how does somebody decide that? How do we decide? Particularly in, in the situation we're in now, if people haven't had the conversation mm. and somebody, the carer, whoever that may be, becomes ill mm. and the person needs to go into care very quickly, mm. how does somebody choose where they want to go. Well, and it's Chris's choice. He's already made the choice. They know him and know a little bit about him. So it's something that not only with dementia, people should think about anyway. Well, absolutely. No, I'm thinking of my own parents and I had to make so many decisions, Jane, that I didn't know. And it was hard because we hadn't had those conversations. You don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. And, and make, making the, the, the programme led to so many conversations yeah. we had that I don't think we would have ever had. And also, yeah. we've heard other people have had those same yeah, conversations. Absolutely, I can what, imagine that. Watching the programme has enabled people to say, look, mm. that's me, mm. or dad, mm. we think that's you, or husband, it's time to go. I mean, mm. people locally that we've become great friends with went for a diagnosis because of seeing the programme. Yeah, so powerful. Nobody wants the diagnosis, but mm. if you ignore it, it doesn't mean it's going to go away. Uh, mm. Yes, I, I can present it very well. 
But if something happened to Jane now, I would have to go into a home because I could not live on my own. Mm. 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 And that's and just the we, fact, the reality of it. It's, mm. it's a fact. And, and mm. so that the move now wouldn't be so traumatic. traumatic. Mm. traumatic. Mm. And tell me, you mentioned the lockdown earlier and how it's affecting Chris. How else are you finding lockdown? So one of the things that we've found with this COVID-19 is we have had the end-of-life conversation previously and Chris has made the decision that he doesn't want any treatment if he got another terminal illness, mm. something like cancer or... Yeah, it's about quality of life, not mm. quantity, isn't it? Mm. But with all the, the anxiety that we've all been mm. feeling and the stress and the knowing it was coming and before lockdown and all that build-up beforehand yeah. where the, the, the dreadfulness that was going on in Italy, mm. Mm. we said, you know, we're going to go into lockdown, but what happens if one of us get it? Yes. And I asked Chris what he wanted. Well, I, I was seeing all this about the shortage of the elevators. Ventilators. Oh. Yes, yeah. I was thinking uh, there, what, what, the ventilators. what's this story that's missing? And, and so I said to Jane, I, I said, listen, I, I said, if, it, if it's between me and saving someone else, I'll probably die anyway because of my emphysema. So, so please don't let me take up a, a ventilator when someone else could actually use it and live he also said, you know, with the right palliative care, he wouldn't want to take a hospital bed. This is when we were all so fearful that they would be running out of beds, running out yes. of ventilators. Yes. And, and I said, just, just leave me at home. <laughs> and the, the decision was made that, yes, we would just do our best at home. Right. However, in the situation where there have been enough hospital beds and there have been enough yes, ventilators, have, yeah. we had the conversation again. Right. So things change all the time. Yes. And now, yes... We would be pushing for Chris to go into hospital to have the oxygen therapy. Yes. But we would still draw the line at the ventilator. Yes. Because with the after effect of going on a ventilator, the damage to the body, to the yes. cognition, to, to the multi-system failure. Yes. It's quality of life afterwards. Yes. And would Chris's quality of life, we know almost guaranteed, would not be as good as it is now. Yes. So we would take our chances with oxygen therapy. Yes. But we wouldn't take the ventilator for him. It's not all about dementia. I've got lung disease too. Absolutely. I was just about to say that as, because as I forgot says, to I'm mention greedy. that. You're greedy. <laughs> yes, because you've got emphysema. <laughs> and I was also going to ask, because not always, just because you happen to have dementia, are you on the vulnerable list? So I was going to ask, but presumably because of the emphysema you are. Yes, yeah, that, mm. that's why I got my um, letter. Yeah. Shielding. Yes. Yeah, shielding to shield. Shield, it, yes. Mainly because of the emphysema. Yes, well, thank you very, very much, you two. You're, I don't care what you say, Chris. I think you're very, very wise. And, <laughs> and I think you're both wonderful and you do so much to reduce the stigma, to increase the public's knowledge, to show people what dementia really is and what it isn't. And I think you both said, actually, when I asked you what you knew now, was that you know having a terminal illness doesn't necessarily kill you. You might die with it, not of it. And that it's not a death on diagnosis. Your life might be different, but it's a, your life carries on. And I think you two exemplify that. So thank you very, very much. Chris and Jane Roberts really are an extraordinary couple. Courageous, funny and wise. They have so much to teach us all. Not least, as they both said when they emailed me before the podcast to say what they learnt from Chris's dementia that a diagnosis certainly doesn't suddenly make you any less intelligent. And remember, for support and help, there's always www.youngdementiauk.org 
and the Alzheimer's Society at alzheimers.org.uk. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.